Good morning. I'm glad to see all of you. We're going to take the last couple of weeks as sort of a given. Okay, we've established Paul's theology. We understand Paul's theology of salvation by grace, and we understand what that means, that God is active in the salvific work, and human beings are merely passive. So we're going to take that as a basis for this morning, and rather than going back and reviewing or repeating anything we've already learned, we're going to take that as a given, and we're going to move forward. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 is where we're going to begin. It's where we ended last week, and it's where we're going to pick up this week. Now, let's begin with a couple of uh, preparatory remarks. I won't call them introductory remarks. That will get you into the frame that Paul was in when he wrote these words. I do not agree with the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. I do not agree with the word of faith version of the gospel. I don't agree with the name it and claim it people because, as we're about to see from Paul's own pen, because none of the apostles taught it or did it. And it seems to me that out of 12 If that were indeed the apostolic doctrine, if that were indeed what the Bible was trying to tell us, well, then someone would have done it. One of them would have become prosperous and well-to-do. But Paul's about to say that the apostles were treated like the off-scouring of the earth, that they were the very lowest of all people. Now, that stands in direct contrast to the church at Corinth. As I told you when we introduced the book of 1 Corinthians, I told you that Corinth was a trading city, a major metropolitan city. They were also quite wealthy, and so the church at Corinth had a great deal of physical comfort. They had a lot of the the physical well-to-do elements that so much of our society now has. And as a consequence of having those things, they were very in the flesh. And here was Paul trying to teach them about the elements of the spirit. Now, this is very important. This is something to really hang on to. Notice that the church at Corinth had the Holy Spirit of God. Paul doesn't argue about that. The fact that they had the spiritual gifts, the fact that they were even taking the Lord's Supper, the fact that he did not ever say to them, okay, you're not a church. You're a heretical group that's meeting on some kind of regular basis for your own reasons. They were a church and they were spirit-filled, but they had to be instructed how to act. They had to be instructed about how the spirit was to affect their flesh. There are a great many people who think that if you have the Holy Spirit of God, you will just automatically and magically do better, behave better. But Paul shows that there are churches of spirit-filled, chosen, elect people who still have to be taught what the expectations of Christianity are, what the behaviors that comport to Christ really are. I think it's one of the reasons that when Paul lists the gift ministries that are given to the church, he says that there are some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, those who preach the evangel, those who teach the gospel. But then there's also pastors, and that word is poimen. It's it's the word for shepherd. It's, It's the overseer of the church. And then there's also teachers, because somewhere in the church there has to be a teaching element. And that's what Paul's engaging in here. He's showing the Corinthians, all right, fine, now you have the Spirit of God. Make sure that your behavior also reflects that fact. So Paul is going to say, in a rather ironical sense, most commentators agree that he's being ironic here, he's going to say, you're kings. You're doing great. You're living it up. Now, he doesn't mean they're actually kings because then he says, I wish that you were kings because then I could rule with you. 
but they're living like kings. And meanwhile, he and all the apostles are living, like I said, like the dregs of the earth. Think about everything Paul had been through. Think about the beatings, stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. Five times beaten with 39 lashes, a day and a night in the deep. Think about how often he said he was in fastings, how often he was tortured, ultimately in prison, having his head cut off by best tradition. Paul's life is not a life that you can say, look at Paul, now come be a Christian. That's not a great invitation to Christianity. But he would say, that's the way it's been through God's sovereignty. That's the way it's been with all of us apostles. And yet you're living high on the hog. And yet you're living with no problems at all. Now, through the book of First and Second Corinthians, we're going to see Paul repeatedly say, I brought the gospel to you freely. I didn't charge you. In fact, he's going to say, I robbed other churches, his way of saying, I took offerings from other churches so that I could have sufficient support so that I could give the gospel to you freely. I worked with my own hands when I was in Corinth. I worked as a tent maker. I received gifts from other places, but I did not charge you. And then at the end of 2 Corinthians, he ends up saying, you didn't fall behind any of the other churches except in this one thing. I was no burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. He saw it as wrong that the church at Corinth should have supported him. The church at Corinth should have provided for him. Here they are living so well to do. And then Paul says, and look at the way I live. So he's correcting their behavior. He's correcting that battle that we all have between the spirit of God and our flesh. That same battle that he wrote about in Romans 7, when he writes about, I want to do the right thing. In my mind, I obey the law of God. But after my flesh, after after myself, my person, my humanity, I just, I just don't find anything but sin. I find a law in my members that where I would do good, sin is present with me. So even Paul had that battle between the flesh and the spirit. And that was a problem that the whole Corinthian church was dealing with. So badly, in fact, that when we get to the beginning of chapter 5, he's going to say, You even have somebody in your midst who is committing a sin that even the Gentiles don't do. Even the unbelievers don't do. This is such a heinous sin that you have to drive that person outside your church, outside your camp. And he says, you've become arrogant. You've become uncaring about the things of God. God has given you these gifts. God has saved you. God has done these very special and miraculous things for you, and you in your arrogance have not repented. You have not changed your ways, and you should. And so Paul announces a very definite sentence. I'm going to judge that as if I'm there with you. Since you haven't cast him out, I say, turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his body. So Paul is very adamant that the church has to reflect Christ in all their ways, in all their thoughts, in the way that they behave, the way they act, the way they care for one another. They have to reflect that Christian attitude. But, as I said before, they have to be taught it. They didn't know it instinctively. They didn't know it just by the Holy Spirit. They abused the gifts of the Holy Spirit, thinking that the gifts of the Holy Spirit made them even greater. Look at me. I'm speaking in tongues. Dig me. And he's bringing their focus back to this is Christ. This is all Christ. And it is none of you. So that's the context for what we're about to read. But first, we're going to read the last verse that we ended on last night, and we're going to do once again something we did years and years ago. In fact, there's a message on our website from years ago called The Theology of the Eraser. And we're going to do that 
real quickly first so that you understand another concept that is so twisted by the word of faith folks or even many Arminian folks or even the name and claim it folks. For who regards you as superior? If you're reading a King James, it will say, for who has made you to differ? Who has made you, Corinth, who has made you, we can stretch that out to all Christians, who has made you different than the world? You used to be just like the world. He's going to give them the list of how they used to be. You used to be just like the world, and and now you're called to be different, to be distinct, to have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. Who has made that difference between you and the world? It's God who has made you different. And what have you that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, all those other groups that I just mentioned. They love that word receive. They glom on to the word receive. And they say receiving is an act of the will. Receiving is something that you do. God is holding out a gift. God is holding out eternal life. God is holding out the sacrifice of his son. God is holding that out and offering it to you. You have to receive it. But the way that Paul's using the word is nothing like that. And the best way that I can demonstrate it is with this eraser. Okay, we're going to pick on Joni. Joni, salvation's in this eraser. Whoever has this eraser is saved. Whoever has this eraser automatically go into heaven. Their sins are forgiven. This eraser right here has the ability to do all that for you. So receive the eraser. No, come on. Receive the eraser. I cannot. You can't. Why can't you? Because I'm not giving it to you. Now, who is going to get the eraser? Whoever I give it to. Now, if in fact the eraser has that quality the quality of salvation, if it's that important, then am I going to give it to anybody and have them go, no, I don't want that. No, I don't need that. I'm fine. No, everybody's going to go, I need the eraser. I want the eraser. Give me the eraser. And so whoever I give it to is the person who receives it. But where's the power? It's with me because I'm the one who gives it. So that's why Paul starts by saying, for who has made you different? Who has made you to differ? It's God who has made you to differ. It's God who gave you the eraser. It's God who made you receive these things. And what do you have that you did not receive? It's a gift. It's something that God gives to particular people. He doesn't give it to everybody. I'm not giving the eraser to everybody. I'm giving the eraser to particular people according to my will. And that's the same way that Paul is talking. By the will of God, he is giving his spirit to particular people on purpose. And that spirit makes them different from everybody else on the planet. That's what makes them different. So then Paul's argument is, if it is God who has given you the thing that has differentiated you from the rest of the world, why are you boasting and bragging as if you did not receive it? As if someone didn't give it to you. As if it wasn't gifted to you. That's his whole argument. So he's trying to tell the Corinthians right from the beginning, the Holy Spirit that's in you, the ability to understand the things of God, the fact that you're even drawn to the gospel is something that you have received from God. So why are you boastful? Why are you arrogant? Why are you acting like that makes you better than everybody else? Now, there is a theology out there that says, if you believe in Jesus, you're just better than everybody else. But we don't believe that here. Joni, you're shaking your head. Yeah, we're all made of the same sin. Exactly right. Have you ever heard the, the very Arminian gospel that people preach and say, 
Jesus has done everything he can do, and now that he's accomplished salvation on behalf of everybody, it's up to you to decide. Well, then you are the smarter, brighter, faster, quicker, cleverer one. Because you're the one who figured out what Jesus did and decided for yourself that you need that. That's good for you. Except you don't find any kind of language like that in the Bible. What you find is the, what I call theology of the eraser. Here, by the way. There, you're saved. Um, the theology of the Bible is it is God and God alone who has made you different, and he gave that to you as a gift, and so then how can you possibly boast or brag about yourself? You didn't do it. Remember the word I used last week. You were passive. God was active. God was the actor you are the recipient. And if that's the case, what is there to brag about? Because it's not as if God looked down from heaven and said, well, let's see, let's find the good ones. <laughs> let's find the ones who I know probably have the capability to have faith, and so I'm going to choose those people. Or let me look down the long telescope of time and find those people who are going to choose me, and then I'll choose them in response to that. You find nothing like that in the Bible, although it's preached far and wide. Paul is so specific in saying it's God, it's all God, it's completely God. It's God who's the actor, it's God who is doing this on your behalf. If that's the fact, if he's doing it and you are passive in the process, then on what basis can you brag or boast? On no basis. You've got nothing. So now with that as a background, okay, that was all introduction. <laughs> now we're getting to... Passivity in someone who receives punishment. It's not like, I have some punishment here to offer you, and anybody who would like the punishment come and receive it. It's, you know, it's exactly. Right. There's nobody lining up for punishment. Well, maybe there's someone somewhere lining up for punishment, but, but they're weird, and we don't talk about them. Um, so now, verse 8, Paul is going to talk about this filling that the Corinthian church has, this high and mighty life that they are living. He's going to enter into this ironic tone that I spoke of earlier. He says, you are already filled. You have everything to the degree that you have already become rich and you have become kings. Notice the next two words, without us. Because they lived in Corinth, because they lived in a wealthy city, they had already accomplished all of that. And they didn't need Paul to accomplish that. They didn't need the apostles to accomplish that. They already were living like kings. And then Paul says, and by the way, I do think this is a sarcastic comment by Paul. This is one of those godlike qualities that I share with Paul, that he occasionally is sarcastic. He says, and I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. <laughs> if you were kings, if you were in charge, if you had some rule, and then we came and brought Christ to you, well, then we can rule with you. We're part of your body. We're part of the church with you. But think about this for I think this is Paul talking about the experience that he has had, the experience that he has seen in the apostles go and read Fox's Book of Martyrs and look at the first couple of chapters where he lists the various ways that all of the early apostles died. Everything from being stoned to death or driven through with Brahmin swords when Thomas went down to India to those who were crucified, and some crucified upside down. They all died horrible, torturous deaths. The only one who survived for any length of time was John, who lived the longest. According to best tradition, he also endured being boiled in oil and then ultimately was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Here's Paul's description of it. For I think God has exhibited us apostles Last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels 
and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you, you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Okay, so Paul's driving a very big contrast here. He's saying you actually think, as part of your religious experience, you actually think that all this fullness and all this living like kings and all this discernment and wisdom that you claim to have, you you actually think that that's all part of your life and religious experience. Well, look at the apostles. Look at me. Look at John. Look at Thomas. Look at Peter. Look at how we are being tortured daily. And Paul even says, I think that God has purposefully done this to make us an exhibition before the whole earth so that the whole earth can look at how, how we have been tortured and how we die For God's glory. We're being exhibited in front of the whole world so that God can be honored. He has chosen us not only to believe in Christ, but to be sacrificed for Christ. And he saw that as a great honor, by the way. One of the things that Paul says about himself, think about the time that he had the the thorn in the flesh. And he said that he entreated the Lord three times to remove that thorn in the flesh. And God's answer was, oh, sure, I missed that. Let me get rid of that right away. No, God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is going to carry you through these hard times. This thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, Paul called it a messenger from Satan sent to buffet me. And that's the word for punch in the face. Sent to buffet me around, beat me around, a messenger from Satan. And I went to God and said, take this away. And God said, my grace is sufficient. Paul's conclusion was that the reason that he had to go through this this very torturous life was to keep him humble because of the greatness of the revelation that had been given to him. So think about that from a human notion. If human beings had great revelation from God, they're quite likely to start thinking, well, I must really be something. Nobody knows the things that I know. Nobody sent to proclaim the things that I'm proclaiming. Think about Paul healing people on the Isle of Malta. Look at me go. I'm healing people now. Think of Paul having a vision. No one on the ship is going to be lost. Then sure enough, nobody on the ship is lost. He's going to start thinking, I've really got this together. And so God gave him specific beatings and jailings and messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And all of that was for the purpose of suppressing his flesh so that he wouldn't get proud in his flesh. And now he's saying to the Corinthians, you're proud in your flesh. You're acting like the world. And you're called to be different than the world. God himself has called you and made you to differ. Why are you boasting as if this has to do with you? Why are you boasting as if God made you different so that you could promote yourself? Verse 9, I think God has exhibited us apostles Last of all, that doesn't mean last chronologically, the same way that Jesus is sometimes spoken of first of all. It means preeminence. It means the highest standing. Paul says that God has decided that we would be least of all. I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. 
We have become as the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until now. Okay, now think about what he's saying. We brought you the gospel. I'm exposing mysteries that have been hidden since before the foundation of the world. And yet the apostles and Paul himself were among those that were most roughly treated while they were on the planet. Can you see now why he would say to the Corinthians, forgive me for not being a burden to you because you really should have taken care of me. But I, in my pride, I think this was kind of a fleshly thing that Paul did. He kept saying, you should give. You shouldn't fall behind the other churches, but I won't request that of you. I won't demand that. I have the power to take gifts from you, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to work with my own hands. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to rob other churches so that I can say that I never charged you for the gospel. And yet he's going to say, in that you fell behind all the other churches because if there was ever anybody who should have been a burden to the church, it was Paul. And yet Paul and the apostles were treated worse than we've ever been treated. Has anybody here ever been treated the way Paul just described? I've never seen any of you show up here hungry or naked. But there's nobody who's been tortured the way the apostles have been tortured. There's nobody in this church who has endured the things that they have endured. And yet that was God's divine plan. And sometimes I wrestle with this. Because it seems to me that being chosen, being elect, being the dispenser of the mysteries of God, God would lift them up on high and give them a seat where everybody would listen and yet... I read Hebrews 11. It's the heroes of faith passage. And as you read through it, you you hear about all the things that these people who were blessed of God endured, all the torture they went through in this lifetime. And then the writer of Hebrews adds this wonderful little phrase that I have really clung to when reading stuff like this. He adds the phrase, of whom the world was not worthy. And then I get it. Of course the world hated the apostles. Of course the world hates the church. Of course to this very moment the world hates Christians. Of course they do. Because we're like a big red shining beacon that says to them there is a God. And there is a judgment. And there is a Christ. And he's in charge of his universe. He's in charge of his planet, and therefore he can do whatever he wants to do, and you're all in very big trouble. So what does the world do? They suppress it. Paul talks about it in Romans. He talks about they hold down righteousness. They suppress righteousness because they don't want to think about the fact that there is a God. That there is a judgment, that there is a future. If they can just eliminate that, if they can convince themselves that when you die, you go into the nothingness, then they can live happily. So, of course, those people who Jesus designated as his sent ones, his apostles on the planet, of course, they would endure this kind of hardship. But Paul contrasts it with how the Corinthians are living. You're fine. And I'm tortured. It shouldn't ought to be that way. And yet, in your fleshliness, in your pride, in your arrogance, that's exactly what you're like. And I'll say again, I am really, really glad that despite the fact that they were like that, that despite the fact that they are acting this fleshly, that Paul never says, forget it. Forget it, you're not a church. Because I've been plenty arrogant. I've been plenty fleshful. I mean, my flesh is is a tough taskmaster. My flesh wants to eat on a regular basis. And if I deny it, it will make me very uncomfortable. My flesh wants what my flesh wants, and it's constantly in battle with the Spirit of God. I know what the right things, what the good things, what the righteous and just things are that I ought to do in life, and yet I find myself so frequently just not doing it. And I can usually blame it on my flesh. 
Well, let's go on and see how Paul resolves this. Verse 14, I do not write these things to you to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Okay, this is not how the world sees love. The world thinks if you love me, you would just ignore that I'm like that. If you love me, you would let me go on and have a happy life and have my money and cars and houses and things and living like kings. And and you would just ignore that. That would be the loving thing to do. But Paul's love, Paul's sacrificial love, Paul's care for them is such that he's willing to confront them. He's going to get harsher in just a moment and say, I'm coming back. And when I come back to Corinth, how do you want me to come back? Do you want me to come back as your loving father? I can do that. Or should I come back with a rod and beat you? It all depends on your reaction to what the truth is. And so he says, I do not write these things in order to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children. So let's ask the question, is it loving? Is it biblical? Is it Christian to admonish people? Yeah, it says so right here. And people, unfortunately, are so used to, uh, don't offend me. Don't say anything that would offend me. I need my safe space. You're, you're in my safe space now. I need a sucker and a lollipop and a, I need ice cream and I need to fold up for a while. Tommy needs a timeout. That's what's wrong. Paul doesn't do any of that. Paul approaches these people as, look. You've been chosen by God. You have the spirit of God inside you. Therefore, act like it. Do not be the way that you are. Recognize what he has done for you. Recognize the depth and breadth of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. And now, don't be like the world. And don't be arrogant. And don't act like it doesn't matter because, again, that's the beginning of chapter 5. You have somebody in your midst who's deeply sinful and you're acting like it doesn't matter. And so I'm going to tell you from a distance what to do about it. Paul is admonishing the church because their behavior is so fleshly. I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless teachers or tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers in Christ. For in in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So now Paul is saying, look, you're going to have plenty of teachers. Within the church, there are going to be people who teach you. I'm even going to send you Timothy so that he can teach you. But as far as birthing you into Christ, as far as teaching you the gospel for the first time, bringing the Holy Spirit of God to you, as far as introducing you to these mysteries, these long-held mysteries since before the foundation of the earth, that God is going to introduce Gentiles into salvation by Christ, into salvation by grace through faith. These are the things that I have brought to you and no one else has brought to you. And so I am your father in the gospel. Yes, you're going to have lots of teachers, but you're only going to have one father. So he says, I exhort you, therefore, be, this is the tough one, be imitators of me. That's really hard because he just said, I'm often starving, and naked, scum of the earth. I'm often tortured, I'm often in trials, I'm often in prison. Come be like me. The automatic answer in our flesh is, no, I don't want to be anything like you. I enjoy my creature comforts. I like my feather bed and my refrigerator full of food. I like my closet full of clothes. I like the fact that I have plenty of stuff. I always walk on carpet, and most of the places I'm ever in are air-conditioned. I like it that way. And Paul says, be imitators of me. Now, I think what he's saying by that is, I keep my flesh down. 
I've learned to keep my flesh down. Don't forget that after his flesh, Paul was persecuting the church. After his flesh, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, could even say as touching the law, blameless. 613 rules got nothing on me. I even studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, dig me. I was really, really something. And so God, to get through that veneer of self-confidence and egocentricity, had to teach Paul how to hold his flesh down and not let his flesh overcome that spiritual battle that he was in, that he writes about. And so Paul would say, be like me, even though you have all these things, even though you have all these creature comforts to the degree that you even live like kings, be like me. Recognize that none of these things matter. In fact, according to Peter, all these things are going to burn. The things that we spend most of our life accumulating, the things that we think are so important, the things that we can't wait to go out and get more of so we can take it back to the box we live in and stuff it full of more things. That's all going to burn. That's nothing. It's what you are in Christ that's going to last. It's what you do for Christ that's going to last. And we have it so upside down, we're very much like the Corinthian church. We think all this stuff is important. And it's not. So he says to them, you're going to have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, be imitators of me. Okay, now for this reason, so that you can learn how to hold down your flesh and be more like me, for this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, the same way that I teach in every church. Every other church he teaches this. Think about what he told the Philippians. Think about the great deep theology that he taught to the Romans and the Ephesians. And yet think about that thread through all of Paul's writing, which is this world, this stuff, this physicality doesn't matter. What matters is Christ and your relationship with Christ and the way that you live in the world. The greatest example of that is the book of Ephesians. The first two chapters of the book of Ephesians is Paul's grand treatise on deep, heavy theological things. And he yanks out predestination and God's foreordination and God does everything according to his own will. And these are things that were decided before the foundation of the world. And then starting at chapter 3, he starts saying, and knowing that, now that you understand who you are, you understand your position in Christ and Christ in you. Now that you know that God did all of that as the actor since before the foundation of the world. Now that you know that, the whole end of the book of Ephesians is... Now, act right. Now, I have to say this one more time. We've said it many times in this church. We won't go into the whole indicative imperative, but you will notice what Paul does consistently all the way along. He never, never says, act like this to get into Christ. He never says, behave right and you'll be a Christian. He never says, God is waiting for you to decide to be better. And when you get better, God will accept you. That's never the Pauline teaching, not once. It is always, God has done all this for you. God has chosen and elected you. God has put his spirit inside you. He has justified you. He has glorified you. He has done all this for you. Therefore, act like this. So the inspiration for acting better is the knowledge of what God has already done for you. We're not doing anything to impress God. God's not impressed. No matter what you do, it's still a sinner that's doing it. We even read in Isaiah, I've quoted this so many times, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So if that's the best you got, is filthy rags, then you genuinely have nothing. 
if the best you can do is nothing, then you've got nothing. So that can't be your inspiration for doing good. That can't be the inspiration. If I stand over Luann, screaming at Luann for hours and hours, be better, is that going to do anything for Luann? No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. I was nowhere near that. But the point is made. So much of religion is a guy standing in a pulpit yelling at people, do better. Well, look, if you could do better, you would. If you had the capability of being better, you'd be better. You don't even have the capability to do any better. The reason you're like this is because you're like this. With all your foibles and all your all your warts and all your incapabilities, this is what you're like. So God did not make the equation of Christianity be better to be Christian. Paul writes, you are Christian, so be better. And that's great inspiration. That's a good reason to be better. That's a good understanding of what Christ has already done for us and his grace and his long-suffering and his kindness and his everlasting love for us, how can we then not be gracious and kind and long-suffering and loving to other people? So you don't have many fathers in Christ. But I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are becoming arrogant, puffed up, as though I were not coming back to you. They're becoming arrogant about that fact. You know, Paul's not coming back. Paul was here, but he's gone now. So it doesn't matter how we act. In fact, we'll decide for ourselves. What kind of church do we want to be? What are we willing to put up with? He says, you're arrogant. And you're going to notice that in a couple of verses, he's going to use that same word again and apply it to, you've let this horrible sinner stay in your midst because you're arrogant. You're puffed up. You're self-willed. But I will come to you soon. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Okay, this is Paul throwing down. This is Paul getting serious and saying, okay, those that are arrogant and puffed up, those that think they're something because I'm not there, well, I'm going to come in the power of Christ when I show up. They've only got their tempting words. And let's find out who exactly has power behind them, who has authority behind them. Is it going to be their self-serving, arrogant words, or is it going to be the power of God you're going to see in me? So Paul's really throwing down here. He's establishing, I'm in charge of this church. I established this church, and I am teaching this church how to behave correctly and to be more Christian in their walk and in their attitude. And it's not those arrogant people who are doing that. It's me. I'm your father in the gospel. I'm the one who has the power of Christ. I'm the one who introduced you to this theology and to this Lord. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but the power for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Let's apply this for just a moment. Let's take a, a moment and breathe and think about the world today. Are there many people out there in the world talking about God? Yes. Lots. There's lots and lots of people talking about God. And they're saying all kinds of crazy things. They're making stuff up, and people are following them. I've mentioned before that when Tom and I were out in Los Angeles, 
that there was a guy on a soapbox on every corner. And that didn't surprise me. Okay, some nut on a box on a corner preaching. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. What surprised me was that there were always three or four more nuts listening to him. That's surprising. Because people are enticed by words. They'll listen to words. They'll listen to great philosophy. And if you talk about God and mix in a little Eastern religion and some contemplative prayer, and you give them things that appeal to them, you make them feel good about themselves. You tell them that they're in charge. They're the ones who are going to choose. You tell them that if you come to Christ, you get a new car and a new house, and your life's going to be better, and your children are never going to be sick, and you're going to be hipper and groovier and more fun at parties, and everything's going to go your way if you just come to Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere because, as we just saw, the Bible says just the opposite of that. But there are plenty of people preaching that because they know it draws a crowd. The kingdom of God is not in words, the words of men, the made-up words. The kingdom of God is in power. Let's talk about Thaddeus because he's sitting right here in a weird black shirt. I don't, I don't understand it. <laughs> Okay, so Thaddeus is running through his little life, right? Thaddeus is doing his thing. Thaddeus is just doing his thing, having his life, carrying on. And then one day, Thaddeus can't help but think about the things of God. God's got a hold of Thaddeus. And on a Sunday, when he could be anywhere else in the world, on a Wednesday night, he's a young man, he's a good-looking guy, he can get a chick, he can go out into the world, he can... Think about Thaddeus. He could be anywhere doing anything. And what is he doing? He's in church. How do you explain that? Nobody talked him into it. The power of God got a hold of him. The dunamis, the power, the might, the uniqueness of God got a hold of him. And once it got a hold of him, nothing he could do about it. He can kick and scream and argue and say, no, I will not have this man rule over me. But here he sits because the power of God is stronger than the power of Thaddeus's flesh. So the kingdom of God is not in words. It's in power. And you see that power demonstrated all the time. Anybody here ever seen a sinner converted? I have. I've seen people that I have said, well, there's a lost guy. There's a rebel. There's someone who's never coming to Christ. And a year later, they're in church. What happened? Well, the power of God got a hold of them. It isn't that anybody talked them into it. As I keep saying, if I can talk you into it, somebody else with more eloquence can talk you out of it. If it were about words and your will and your decision-making, you're going to be turned by every wind of doctrine. Somebody else is going to come along with a more attractive doctrine or a better rock band, and you're going to be gone. You're going to say, well, now I'm part of this thing, this movement, because their words are more enticing than those words. Well, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in the power of God picking and choosing particular people for himself, those people that he has written down in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, those people who Christ died for and those people receive the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God within them becomes a governor on their behavior and on their thinking and it changes their life utterly and then they sit somewhere where they have a pastor and a teacher who's going to tell them the better way to live, how to be unlike the world and devote themselves to the things of Christ. And that doesn't happen to everybody. It happens to those people God chose. And that's power. You get it? Yes. Apparently two people get it. <laughs> now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, it consists in power. So, what do you desire? 
Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I can come either way. You know, I can come in there and just bust you up bad. But I'd prefer to come to you as a father to his loving children. Most people, if they're, if they're rightly wired, prefer to come home and see their children doing fine, doing good. I used to hear all the time, I'd come home and I'd hear the kids go, oh, we've heard all day, it's wait till your father gets home. Because I had to be the disciplinarian. And I told my son one day, who's sitting back there, I told my son one day, you know, you're really upsetting me. Because I've worked all day. And I don't want to come home and be mad at you. I want to come home and go, where are my wonderful children? Come here, give your daddy a big hug. Oh, I love my kids. I want to come home and be happy. I don't want to walk through the door and hear, do you know what your son did? Like suddenly she's disowned him and he became my son all of a sudden. (laughs) You know what your son did? And then I got to hear all the bad news. Well, he did this, he did that, he did that. Now get in there and beat him, senseless. For the record. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't want to be upset at him. I don't want to dole out any punishment. I want to come home and be happy. And so Paul's the same way. I want to come back to Corinth, and I want to know that you've learned these lessons. I want to know that you've listened to what I've told you and how I've instructed you. But I don't have to come that way. I can come in and hear how you've been and what you've done, and I can come with a rod. If you're unfamiliar with that language, that's the spare the rod, spoil the child sort of language that we find in the Old Testament in the Proverbs, Paul understands that the rod is a rod of correction. I can come to you and make it uncomfortable. Because remember, he's got the power of God behind him. He can make it real uncomfortable for for these people. So it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And that is where we'll pick up next week, at the beginning of chapter 5. Because now that I've introduced it, you're all like, what? We have to come back next week to hear about it. I'll get you back here one way or the other. (laughs) But Paul is going to conclude, as I said earlier, He's going to conclude something amazing that we just don't have time to talk about this morning. He's going to conclude, well then, not only should you drive such a one out of the church, but you should turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that when Christ comes back, his soul may be saved. That's deep and heavy. And it's some indication of the sort of rod that Paul wields. Paul says, when speaking of the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians, he says, speaking of the various kinds of judgments of God, he says, there are some among you who have taken the Lord's Supper so wrongly that they are sick and some have died. God is putting sickness on people and killing people for the way they're rebelling against how he wants things done. So you've got to understand that the Temporal judgments of God are very, very serious. He expects his church to be different. He expects a certain purity within his church. He expects a devotion within his church. He expects that the word of God is going to regulate and standardize his church. And he wants his churches to be like each other in unity, in unity with Christ, in unity with God, and in unity of doctrine and the word. And that's what Paul says over and over and over again. You think that at some point we'd understand that. So next week we will talk about the very severe judgments against somebody who's in rebellion. Da 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 da. <laughs> Any questions about that? Yes, sir. 
Could you give us a sentence or two on each of those two or three modernistic theologies that you referred to at the beginning? Yeah. Uh, actually, Jeff could give you a word or two on word of faith. Because at the men's meetings, he's been very good and accurate about describing what word of faith is. But essentially, they're all, I hate to call them theologies, but they're all philosophies that say that you're in control. And that God is obligated, once you choose him, once you make him your Lord and your Savior, God is now obligated to do for you whatever you demand of him. What, if, what does if, faith mean? I mean, how does that fit? Well, there, there it is. I, and go ahead, finish your sentence. If you have enough faith. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So right, that's, right. that's their, their sort of uh, escape clause, is that if you go to them and say, I've done all the stuff. I've listened to you, I've, I've given my money, I've trusted God, and I'm still sick, or I'm still poor. Well, then they'll put it back on you, because it's all up to you, and they'll say, you just don't have enough faith. And that is the essence of word of faith theology, is that it says you can, if you have enough faith, tell God and tell angels what to do for you. And in fact, I have a friend, this is true, I have a friend who is a long-standing member of a very big Word of Faith church here in Nashville. And because their faith is tied to their opulence, he has too big a house, he and his wife drive too fancy of cars, and their house is outfitted in furniture they can't afford. They are deeply, deeply, deeply in debt at this point. They don't even know how they're going to get out of the debt they're in. Because they want to show the people at their church that they're blessed by God. Because that's what their theology demands. If God is for you and you're for God, then you're going to have all the stuff this world can provide. And so in order to prove their faithfulness, they have gone out and gotten all the things that this world can provide. So that's why I'm so adamantly against that. Because in the Bible over and over, we see Christians, like we read this morning, we see Christians suppressed in this world. We see Christians as the scum of the earth. We see God determining that they're going to suffer in this lifetime. One of the toughest verses, one of the toughest bits of Pauline theology for me to handle is when he says it's given to you to believe in Christ and if he had stopped right there I'd be all for that verse that's right it's given like the eraser it's given to believe in Christ you have faith because God gave it to you except that Paul doesn't stop the second half of that verse is and to suffer for his sake that's also given to you. And so with the faith comes the suffering. And that is the Christian paradigm. But it's not the world's paradigm. And so when the world constructs a Christian-like philosophy, it comes up with things like word of faith. Name it, claim it. If you're sick, just say you're not sick and you'll get well. It is Joel Osteen on steroids. Yes, it is all just, yeah. And there are plenty of those folks. You turn on the TV, I, I won't name names, but the initials are TBN. If you turn on that channel any time of day, there's somebody telling you how you can have victory in this life. And the Bible doesn't say you're going to have victory in this life. The Bible says you may very well be killed in this life. But then again, what did we read last week? It's in Isaiah. It's in Romans. We are sheep accounted for the slaughter. That doesn't sound like happy-go-lucky Christianity. That sounds like hardcore, dig deep, plant your feet, stand for Christ type of Christianity. And whatever the world does to you, whatever happens in this world to you, it is God who is making sure that he's teaching you how to keep your flesh under control. Does that make sense? Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, sir. The world's labeled Christianity is, is so insidious 
that <coughs> it takes the, like the verse of power of religion. You know, the gospel's not in words, it's in power. And it creates a power religion theology and then makes it people's experience. And if you're not experiencing the power, then you're not, you don't have enough faith. And it just, it's so insidious. It, it is insidious. Have you ever heard the phrase, doctrine divides, experience unites? And there are whole churches out there based on that philosophy that if you just give everybody a common experience, you can build a church. Because doctrine naturally divides. We've seen the people who have come in here and said, that's hard doctrine. Out the door they go. Yes, I agree with them. Doctrine divides. It's meant to. It's supposed to. It's going to figure out the men from the boys. Or the girls from the women. I'm not being sexist. Yes, sir. Give me an example of uh, a couple who kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They kind of kind of floss like they have it all together because of their faith. But that whole um, word of faith, it can do damage as well in the, in the, in the uh, opposite sense. Because I've heard of people who will get beaten down and their idea of God is completely misdirected. And they think, I'm trying my best here. Obviously, I'm not doing enough, so this isn't for me. And they end up having a harsh hatred of God and Christianity. That's so true. If you're convinced that if you just do enough stuff, God has to heal you, then when you don't get healed... It's God's fault. And then you end up hating God for not living up to what you believed was his word. Because they've been taught wrong. You're just hopeless. You're just hopeless because they've been taught badly. Yes, sir. I really feel bad for Thaddeus. What's he going to do with Thaddeus? <laughs> when we're done here, I'm going to give him an eraser. And then he's going to be okay. So, Yes, sir. I have a question, just a, a little more clarity if you could on, on verse 21. So I understand Paul is coming to the Corinthians and he says, I'm about to come one of two ways, either with a rod or with gentleness. And he says, which do you desire? So it's up to you. So what exactly is he saying that is incumbent upon them to do in order that he comes? With Everything that's in this letter. He's not going to come until after the letter has arrived. Also remember, by the way, that there was a first letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have. It's lost somewhere to history, but Paul makes reference to it. And so I believe that he's saying everything I've written here and everything that was in that first letter, make those changes. If I come and see those changes, I'll know that you're actually paying attention to what I, your father in the faith, have said to you. But if I come and see you not doing those things, he's going to come with a rod. So the very much immediate context is about church discipline and whether you're exercising Absolutely. Yeah. And since you said that, it's about church discipline. What is the purpose of church discipline? It's always for the restoration of the person who's being disciplined. It's always for the purpose of reconciliation and bringing them back in the fold. But if they prove themselves obstinate, then you put them out of the church. But the desire is to bring them back to the church. It's never just for the purpose of getting rid of people. Right? Anything else? Remember that this Tuesday, right? Tuesday night, men's group. Yes, sir. Say goodbye to the internet people. They're going away. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.